0: Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Lord, we come before you. Father, we acknowledge, God, that we need you more and more. Father, we welcome you into this place. God, we welcome your transforming grace, God, to touch our hearts. Father, we pray that you would transform us from the inside out, God, that you would release light to every part of our soul, God, every part of our emotions, God, you would release your light and your truth, and you would lead us in Jesus' name, amen. So this topic of, this, of grace, the more I look at it, the more I realize a few things that there re- it really is a difficult journey to apply God's grace. The more I stare at the topic, the more I realize how difficult it is to actually flesh it out and walk it out. And I think the, the challenge, the challenge of delivering a sermon and the challenge of receiving a sermon is that if the person delivering the sermon has clarity, I mean, we're all for clarity, right? We, we want the, the pastors and the preachers and the teachers to have conviction and clarity on the topic, whatever that topic is. The difficulty of having clarity on this, being able to look at the, look at the passages, organize the passages, understand the flow of thought you know, get conviction from God on on the importance of those topics. The, The challenge is, once you deliver with clarity, there's room for the person hearing that message to assume that because it can be delivered clearly, that the application of what you've just learned should be easy, right? All of us fall under that that, that temptation, right? So for for, for those of us that perhaps it's going to a, a marriage class, you go to the marriage class and what do you learn? You learn some relevant scriptures, you hear some testimony You learn some principles, and you're encouraged. But transitioning that into real life is often a hundred times harder than the theory of it, right? So, so, So the term that's been bouncing around in my head is grace theory, grace theory, now I'm using the term theory not to say that we aren't sure if it's true, right? I mean, there's lots of phrases that you could attach theory to that it's like, well, some people believe one thing, some people believe another. It's just a theory. I'm not using the term like that when I say grace theory. I'm using the term to say that until we learn how to walk it out in real scenarios, in real life, it's basically theory. Not less true. It can be 100% true, 100% provable, but it's still theory until I flesh it out. Right? So I'll, I'll give some examples. So my yard, if you've seen my yard, it could use help. Right? It, it th- There's hard clay, there's patches of no grass, there's plenty of weeds, there's plenty of, you know, divots and holes, and so I enjoy learning, so I've watched videos on killing killing the lawn completely and starting over, I've watched videos on reseeding, I've watched videos on top dressing, I've watched videos on lawn leveling. I've watched videos on overseeding. I've watched plenty of videos. But how many of you know that watching the video and putting it into practice is two different things? I can be entertained by the video. I can be inspired by the video. I can be hopeful that one day I'll wake up and my lawn will just magically be nice Right, So so this is the same with, again, to go back to the topic of marriage, this is the same. It's one thing to read the book that lays out the biblical principles, that lays out the biblical theology, that lays out the theory of a healthy marriage. So in theory, it's healthy to compliment your spouse multiple times a day, every day for months on end. How many of you spouses would love to have your husband or wife compliment you multiple times a day for months on end? In theory, that would be really helpful. But the application of that theory can be extremely difficult. because. The, so, the theory is true, but the application of all the random scenarios that add tension to a relationship... That, that bug you and trigger you and do all those other things can make it incredibly difficult to actually do the thing that supposedly will help, right? The theory is my lawn can be fixed. The reality is watering my lawn, doing all the work first, all the other work, and then finally you get the seed down and you cover it and the lawn's leveled and all the other things, but then to actually walk it out and to water it like six some times a day for like 6 weeks straight I don't got time for that ain't nobody got time for that right so so it's the same thing with any of the biblical principles and that's the challenge of preaching because preaching why, why are we gathering to hear this? Because I can be entertained. I can be built up. There's, there's, there's many things that preaching does. I, you know, we gather to hear testimony. We gather to be encouraged. We gather to be exhorted. We gather to be taught. We also gather to be equipped. But translating this to real life is exponentially harder than hearing with clarity and conviction the theory. Again, by theory, I don't mean less true. I just mean we haven't yet learned how to put it to practice in the trials of our actual life. So that is what I've been thinking through related to this topic of grace to review a couple things that, I, that I've said last week. In Matthew 18, there's this question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The truth, the theory is don't stop forgiving him. The practice of putting that into, of, of implementing that in our life, how many of you know it's hard? This is, I mean, we are entering into the holidays. You're going to be gathering with, with family and, you know, over Thanksgiving and Christmas. The reality of putting this verse into practice over Thanksgiving and Christmas or thinking about the relatives that are, you know, there's, there's, there's so much tension you don't even know if you want to be around them. The reality of putting it into practice is on a whole other level. So I'm going to teach you a new word. Well, hopefully some of you know it. There's this new word, magnitudinal. How many of you have heard that term? Magnitudinal. Or perhaps a more, you've probably heard this phrase, an order of magnitude. Right? Magnitudinal is, is that statement to say that it's incomparable. It's incomparable. Fresh homemade guacamole, the difference between fresh homemade guacamole and guacamole you squeeze out of a bag, no matter how fancy the advertising picture looks, the difference is magnitudinal. (laughs) It's not comparable. So when we're talking about the theory of grace, learning the principles and implementing them in your life is magnitudinal. It can't be compared. You still need to learn the principles. We still need to wash ourselves with the truth. We still need to look at the Word and begin to wrap our head around what the Bible says about grace and where it applies and when it applies. But the actual walking out and putting boots on the ground and walking it out, the difference is an order of magnitude different. I can watch a video about underwater welding. If I do that, I would be entertained. It would be for entertainment purposes only. The statistical likelihood that I will need to use the principles I've learned about how to weld underwater is basically zero. So, again, the challenge is I don't just want to come to church to learn the theories for entertainment purposes only and then go live my life and be unchanged. Live my life and say, well, I've heard of the theory of forgiving people over and over again and never stopping. I've heard the theory of of an abundance of grace. I've heard the theory that where sin abounds, grace should theoretically abound more I've heard the theory but I've never put it into practice. I've watched the video on overseeding my lawn or fixing the lumps but I've never done it. That's the challenge of showing up to church. That's a challenge for the person speaking and gaining clarity. I also need to put boots on the ground and put it into practice and that's the challenge for you listening is to say okay I'm beginning to understand the theology of grace. I'm beginning to understand the principles of God's grace, but putting it into practice is number 1 completely different and number 2 exponentially harder. So we know in Ephesians 4:32 it says be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Sounds amazing. Putting it into practice, when the person I'm supposed to be tender with and forgiving and be kind to is not doing any of those things back to me, then the practice of that becomes exponentially more difficult, yes? And then we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. And then later on in the verse, it says, Therefore, from now on, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. How many of you have recognized people according to the flesh in the last month? All of us. All of us have been pricked and felt the tension of someone else's flesh, someone else's. Sin, someone else's impatience, someone else's whatever it is selfishness, anger, etc. We feel that and we log it away, be like, okay, now I know who you are. Now I know how I can expose you when I'm mad, or now I know how to stay away from you, or whatever it is. We recognize people according to the flesh. So, living out God's grace means following in Christ's footsteps by not counting their trespasses against them. We saw that phrase in the, in the same passage, 2 Corinthians 5. This is, so, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and He calls us to not count other people's trespasses against them. This is how we become ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of grace. We follow in the footsteps of God by not counting people's sins against them. Again, the theory is awesome. The application is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Because on the other side of this challenge is real pain. Real wounding in relationship. Real people that, in your estimation, don't treat you right. So the way to apply grace is actually to die. How many of you are ready to run to the altar to die first? I want to die first. Die to my flesh. Die to my demands. Die to me being right in the conversation. Die to the temptation of exposing someone else and magnifying their sin so that I am proven right. I'm self-justified in the way I react. But that's exactly what we see in Scripture. In order for grace to apply, sparks must fly. It's true. In order for grace to apply, sparks must fly. And we must die. It's true. The application of grace is only and primarily in the context when we are least likely and desiring to apply it. It's needed most. So, the theology of grace can be stimulating to our mind. It can create warmth in our heart, but the application of involves the actual act of giving grace to those who have hurt us and receiving grace from those that we ourselves have let down and sinned against. Because how many of you know, we act in ways that stir others up and hurt others, and therefore we ourselves need grace applied. So Titus 3, 3 through 5, it says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. How many of you fall into that category? We ourselves were foolish. How many of you have been a fool? disobedient, deceived. How many of you are, how many of us are willing to confess, I have walked in deception and it's hurt people. I've served and pursued various lusts and pleasures. I've lived in malice and envy. I've hated. I've engaged in the act of hating. It says then verse 4, but... When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit. So, where does grace and mercy show up? Where does it show up? It says he saves us not based on our righteous deeds. If God saves us not based on our righteous deeds, and it says that we all were once this list of atrocious things, we've all engaged in hatred, we've all engaged in the uncapped pursuit of our own pleasures, we've all engaged in malice and envy, We've all engaged in levels of anger and rage. We've all engaged in all of these things. So where does the grace of God appear? The grace of God doesn't appear before we've stumbled. The grace of God appears after we have lived our life our own way pursued our own pleasures ran up against the wall of our own sin suffered the consequences of, the consequences of our own selfishness it says then the grace of God appears then the grace of God appears and it says it's not according to our own righteous acts in other words We don't deserve it. It's showing up when we least deserve it, but most need it. So, how then do I translate that glorious gospel of grace? How do I translate that in my own life? How do I die to myself to the degree so that when someone else needs my unmerited kindness? in the midst of their greatest weakness, their greatest manifestation of their own foolishness, disobedience, deception. Again, the only way for real grace to be applied is through the death of our own flesh. We have to let go. The difficulty is, the flesh will feed a narrative to keep itself alive. How many of you know that? Sin is deceitful, and the flesh will feed itself a narrative to keep itself alive. So, the narrative may be, it's not fair. I mean, this is a real narrative of the, of the, of the, of the flesh. It's not fair so-and-so has the freedom to list all of my issues. I should have the freedom to respond in like manner and list all of their issues. If someone else has the freedom to expose my sin and anger, it's only fair that I would have the space to expose their sin and anger. If they don't forgive me, it's only fair that I also not forgive them. So the flesh will have a false narrative, a deceitful examples and excuses to keep itself alive. The only way for grace to appear in the midst of that tension and chaos and sin and pain is for one or more of the parties to die. One or more of the parties to let go. And to say, I abdicate my supposed right in the flesh to respond in like manner, to respond in anger, in unforgiveness, etc. So the other person or entity, or group, they need grace the most when you hurt the most. Your friend, your spouse, your pastor, your boss, they need grace the most when their weaknesses, failures, and sin hurts you the most. To become like Christ is to deny ourselves in that scenario and give grace when we least desire to give it. Talked about this last week. It's easy to say, well, I'll give grace when you deserve it. Well, that's not grace. I'll be kind to you when you earn it. I'll respect you when you do everything perfectly. I will love you. I will start to meet your needs once you have met all of mine. So, the, 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 this message of grace is challenging. This is not a message that is easy. As glorious as God's grace is, actually turning around and applying it, again, I think is one of the hardest things we will ever do. So, Romans 3, 21 through 23 it says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. It says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. How many of you want there to be a distinction? I think all of us want there to be a distinction, if we're honest. Like, don't lump me in the same category as those people. They sin worse than me. They sin deeper than me. They sin more passionately than me. We always want to create categories. Because it abdicates us from our responsibility for, for our contribution. If I can convince myself that someone else's sin is greater than mine, is less than mine, is more pronounced than mine, is more damaging than mine, then I can hide my sin under the rug and be so shocked that someone sinned against me. And then I can self-justify myself into being angry or unforgiving or exposing their sin or talking about their sin behind their back or any, uh, any host of other things. All because I haven't taken this verse seriously. There's no distinction. That is humbling. It's humbling to say, God, all of us can give a thousand examples of why we think intellectually and emotionally, why we think someone else's sin is just so much worse than ours. But part of the application of grace is dying to that argumentation in our own heart and saying, God, I believe the gospel, your gospel, your statement. There's no distinction. This is precisely what often causes us to bite and devour one another. Instead of seeing us all under the category of needing patience and grace, we focus on how the differences between me and you or you and someone else is so great and the pain of the sin committed against so-and-so or against me or against you is so great that then we enter into that carnal nature of biting and devouring one another. Or exposing one another, or talking bad about one another. It's all because we have yet to die ourselves. Even if I'm a bystander and I'm, and I'm observing from a distance someone else's sin and someone else's reaction to their sin, and I'm just sitting on the sidelines as a judge, I can also fall under that same temptation To participate in my heart and mind with this biting and devouring of one another. So, Romans 3, 24. This next verse, it says, being justified as a gift by His grace. So, we know there's no distinction. And now it says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate the righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." So, number one, the entrance into this gospel of grace is by faith. What does that mean? Again, where does the grace of God come into the scenario? God shows up in the midst of war. God shows up in the midst of fleshly carnage. God shows up in the midst of a sin soaked scenarios. He's showing up. All are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short. None is righteous. No, not one. God is coming into that scenario after sins have been committed on all sides. He's showing up with a free gospel of grace. And how do we enter into that gospel of grace? By faith and not by works. What does that mean? If it's by works then I'm focused on their sin being greater than mine, me self-justifying myself and saying, God, I'm approved by you because my sins are smaller than theirs. If it's by works, then I will always be focused on measuring the greatness of someone else's sins as it, in comparison to my own. The reality of the gospel of grace is that there's fleshly carnage everywhere. Our our hands are stained with sin. We have been ourselves, not just them, ourselves, under the deception and the full bondage of the carnal nature and sin. So the only way for me to get out is by faith. Faith. And not by works. Why is it not by works? Because I've already committed the sins that disqualify me. It can't be by works. I cannot work myself out because I've already committed the sins. The blood is already on my hands. The, 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 the sin's deceitfulness has already grown a tree in my heart. So I can't get out by works. So I get out by faith. By faith in the free gift... Of God's unmerited grace and favor and mercy for me. So, being justified as a gift by his grace. And how does God rescue us? It says, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So, if this is how it works, God rescues me by through repentance, through faith, he lets go of the list. Of all the sins I've committed, he actually forgives. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. If that's how God reconciles my heart to him, that is how we reconcile one to another. We follow the same principle. The application is hard, it is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. But it is in following his footsteps. And then Romans 3:27 It says where then is boasting It is excluded By what kind of law of works? No. But by the law of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Where then is boasting? It's excluded the way God set it up. True humility is to say left to myself, apart from the rescue of God's grace, I am just as deceived, I am just as controlled by my carnal nature as you are. I am just as bound by sin I'm just as incapable of getting free as you are. So there's no boasting. In reality, where is boasting? It's exactly what I said last week. Because I perceive that I haven't chosen the same sins as you have, I perceive that I'm better than you. Because my sin of choice is different from yours. Or the sin or the stumbling or the addiction or whatever that I faced in my past is different or less than yours. So then I boast. I boast in my commitment. I boast in my disciplines. I boast in what I perceive to be my hunger for God being greater than yours. That's where boasting is in reality. But before God's throne... It says boasting is excluded because the only way I'm rescued is by faith, through the free gift of God's grace. So, the only way you are rescued is by faith, the free gift of God's grace. And if we really are transformed by God's kindness in rescuing us, then I can die to myself over and over and over again and say, God, teach me how to do this to my brother and my sister. We always think in theory before we figure out the hard facts of how things actually work in practice. We always think in theory before we put anything into action. So again, that's the challenge. I, I, I like reading books. The downside of reading a book on any topic marriage, addictions, anger, anything, any topic the challenge is I'm getting the theory, I'm getting the principles, I'm getting the theology, but I haven't yet put it into practice. And the putting it into practice is where it matters. I've heard it said, if you want to be an expert on the theory, you become a professor. I've I've heard heard this for years. It's like there's this negative sentiment of business professors. They know the theory and they've never run a business. Right? Right? So, they're an expert on the theory, but they haven't put boots on the ground and actually stumbled through, in weakness and in failure, the actual implementing of the theory. So, God shows up, as I said, on the battlefield. Learning to live by grace is like driving with a failing transmission— or learning to drive a stick shift. There's lots of grinding, scraping, clunking, sudden stops with violent jerks, and no confidence that we will get to our final destination. That's the application of grace. It's the hardest thing that we will learn to do die to ourselves, offer to someone else what they don't deserve, all the while suffering. So, James 4, there's a, a, few, a few passages that I'd like to work through. James 4, 1 through 12, says, "'What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? "'Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members?' nothing like hitting, just hitting the nail on the head. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Your carnal nature. It says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterers, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So our carnal flesh has not yet been fully crucified, and this creates quarrels and conflicts. So, I I gave this verse last week, but here I'm giving the context. So, verse 6, it says, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pay attention to where this term grace, where it's showing up, because this is also the challenge of a pastor, teacher, preacher. We can extract the single verse that has the word that we want to talk about, and not show the context because of a lack of time, many reasons. So, here is the context. It says, but he gives a greater grace. So, again, where is the grace showing up? It's showing up on the battlefield because he just said, what is the source of conflicts? He's talking about lust, and he's talking about being envious, and he's talking about fighting and quarreling. So, in, the, in, the, in the, the exact moment where both parties are stained with sin, both parties have sin manifesting in their heart, and then it says, but he gives greater grace. So, that's precisely where and when God wants to show up with his grace. God is opposed to the, brow, to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What keeps the argument going? Any guesses? Pride. I mean, we know this. How many of you have been in an an argument with your parents, with your spouse, with your kids? What keeps the argument going? Pride. I want to have the last will say. Right? If someone makes a hurtful statement, or a negative statement, or what I perceive to be an accusation, I want the it's, it's, it's unfair. It's unfair if I jump ship. We feel it's unfair. So, we want the freedom to defend ourselves, the freedom to lash out, the freedom to, to say another hurtful statement back to them. But here it says, He gives greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, the only way to get grace is, number one, acknowledge sin's already fully manifesting. Like, I've just got to realize that. And then I get grace through humility. He gives grace to the humble. So right in the middle of the chaos, right where sin is manifesting, including my own, I obtain grace from God. When I humble myself, I shut down the flesh, I repent, I renounce, I break agreement, I shut down the flesh, even if it means me, quote-unquote, losing the argument, or even if it means me not defending myself, or even if it means me feeling the pain, I shut it down there, and I find grace and favor with God by walking away. And then verse 7, this is the context of another famous verse. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. All right, let's pause. These verses are very much for mature believers, meaning they're in your face. Like how… If your pastor speaks like this, the modern culture would be like, whoa, you are not being very pastoral right now. Don't you dare call me a sinner. Don't you dare tell me to shut down my carnal flesh. Right? We perceive that a gentle, humble, pastoral nature is going to not confront us, not call a spade a spade right? And just encourage us. But here we see the opposite. Cleanse you hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. If I call you double-minded, what is that? Are you like, sweet? (laughs) Be miserable and mourn and weep. Wait a second. Whoa, that's not pastoral. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak against one another. Brethren, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Therefore... or or there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So again, where is the grace of God showing up? On the battlefield, when the carnage of the flesh is everywhere. And we enter into the grace by doing, like, again... Think about the context. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Like there is manifested quarrels and conflicts and envy and lust and all of these things. And then it says submit to God. So when are we challenged to submit to God? In the middle of the thick of it. When are we challenged to resist the devil and flee? In the middle. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn and weak. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. This exhortation is precisely at the point where sin has already been committed on both sides. There's no one self-justified. No one can stand up and say, Oh, I don't, this doesn't apply to me. Because I was sinned against, it's not my fault. I reacted in anger because, because, because of them. This is really humbling. This is saying, in the middle of the crisis, we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. In the middle of the crisis, we throw our hands up and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Cleanse my lips. For I have not spoken righteously. Verses like this are blunt. So Titus two eleven through three, or uh, Titus two eleven through chapter three verse seven. So verse eleven it says, "For the grace of God has appeared." Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteous and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating and hateful, and says, but then the kindness of God our Savior has appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, but according to the mercy of God, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the, of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So grace shows up to instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So the grace of God isn't just forgiving us of past sins. The grace of God isn't just him washing our slate clean. The grace of God wants to actively, manifestly instruct us, empower us, lead us, call us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Why? We will face the challenge of denying ourselves the challenge of picking up our cross every day of our life. You can't just look backwards and say, in 1997, you gave your life to the Lord, your flesh died, and now you're good. Everything that I'm saying, the, 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 the grace of God flows when we embrace humility embracing humility means that I'm acknowledging my desperate need for God to help me do this because I don't want to just look at the grace theory and say well I've been entertained by the theory but I know nothing of the application I've read a book on grace once. I liked what it said. I have no idea how to apply it. For the grace of God, it has appeared. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And then Hebrews 12 4 through 17. This is such a challenge. And Craig, you can come up. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time that seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness I mean this is this is weighty you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin I think often we focus we say well that doesn't apply to me because I walked away from this sin or that sin historically but we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood God is calling us to be sober minded realizing where sin takes us the damage it does not just to us but to those around us Partial resistance to sin isn't enough. Actual transformation requires the pain and death of striving against sin to the point of bloodshed. Obviously, this isn't a literal statement of shedding your own blood to get free of sin. But this is the seriousness of it. So we do it by faith. We enter in by faith, but yet coupled with that faith is that actual inhumility, that actual recognition that I've got to fight this thing because it's after me. The sin inside of you, whatever it is, from addictions to pride, everything in between, sin wants to be master sin wants to corrupt and destroy completely and jesus says whoever the lord loves he disciplines he scourges everyone who that he receives how many of you are like yeah god in order for me to be your son, I've got to be disciplined by you. I've got to feel the pain of it. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. All of it. All discipline from God is not pleasant. How many of us want to be disciplined by God, even though it's not pleasant? Because here's what it says. Yet those who have been trained by it... Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. After the pain. Again, let's let's bring it all together. All of us struggle with sin. All of us have tasted of the pain of being sinned against and the pain of sinning others and watching them suffer under it. In order for grace to come and rescue us, grace is coming to rescue us in the middle of the carnage and the sin and the failure. God comes to rescue us by faith as a free gift. The grace of God, the unmerited kindness of God is a free gift. He comes to release that grace as a free gift. And the process of actually embracing that and walking it out is the discipline of the Lord that will be utterly painful. The process of dying to your flesh is the most painful thing you will ever experience. Every believer that comes through this and comes out the other side with the peaceable fruit of righteousness knows the pain associated. They know the pain of the death of the flesh. Because it's easy to look at the theory and say, in theory, I'm supposed to forgive and not stop. The actual pain of forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply or is continually hurting you, if we submit to the process and we allow God's discipline to lead us and guide us, to teach us how to deny our flesh, to teach us how to deny our own sin and that process of pain, we will come out the other end with peace, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. And just to be clear, all of these messages on grace, I'm not directly commenting on domestic violence or sexual abuse or other scenarios that are complex. I'm not saying you forgive someone by staying in a environment that is dangerous or where there's crimes being committed. I'm not in remotely saying that. That's a whole other levels of conversation and topic. But I am saying in everyday life we experience the fruit of our sin and the sins of others and we're hurt by it. And that pain is real. But in order for us to be disciplined by the Lord and come out the other way as ambassadors of grace, the process will kill us. That's how bad it hurts. The process is death. Dying to my own desire to defend, lash out, expose, medicate my pain with addictions, All of that is so painful. The only way to get through the other side is humility with faith. Submitting to the discipline of the Lord. And and staying on the journey. 1 Peter 2.19 We'll close with this verse. It says, for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. This finds favor with God, for the sake of conscience toward God. In other words, how God sees me is more important than the pain of the actual scenario. It says, if I bear up under sorrows and suffer unjustly. How many of you want to suffer unjustly? Again, I'm not talking about domestic abuse. I'm not talking about being sexually abused or any of those complex scenarios. But none of us want to suffer unjustly. But God says we find favor with God when we bear up under it. And we refuse to say, I deserve to enter in to sin myself because of the pain of someone else's sin. So I just invite you all to stand. If anyone wants to come forward to just before God, just say, God, I've heard the theory now I'm ready to walk it out. And you want God to give you grace and help in walking it out. Then I invite you to come forward. Walking out grace is one of the hardest things we will ever learn. We can always self-justify our way into reacting in the flesh, medicating our our pain with sin. So God, we just cry out. Father, you say you give grace to the humble. God, we confess the truth that we have all we have all pursued and stumbled in sin. God, we have all awakened and fed flesh. God, we say have mercy on us. Teach us how to love like you love. Teach us how to forgive 70 times seven. Teach us how to give unmerited kindness toward those around us. God, we ask you, make it real. God, we say yes to the discipline of the Lord. God, we say yes in the name of Jesus to you teaching us. Even in the pain, God, you teaching us how to live in ways that honor you and lead to peace and righteousness, God. God, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would teach us how to be, have abundance of grace and kindness and patience. Lord, towards family and friends and neighbors, God, through this holiday season, God, of gathering together, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, give us all grace. In Jesus' name, amen. you for joining us this week until next time